Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2021, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools is here every Saturday to give you the news, particularly of the week, about public education, to defend and promote public education. And we have a, a quite, a, there's been quite a lot happening in the last week, believe it or not. We've uh, put together a program for you. First of all, our press release 912 deals with Where did our politicians go to school? It's very interesting because the trust in teachers has really skyrocketed over COVID, but the trust in our politicians seems to be reaching ever new lows, Uh, not just in Australia, but apparently overseas. And um, we thought that we'd um, compare and contrast just where our politicians went to school and also other things about their background because there was a very interesting article in the last week in the Sydney Morning Herald and I think it came into the age as well called Pathways to Parliament. So we thought that we'd uh, discuss this with you. And then we're going to have um, a very interesting couple of um, articles about teachers and how important they have been in the pandemic and how important they are going to be in the um, times to come, trying to get out of this horrible time of plague that we have been in. Then uh, Jeff has got um, a very interesting article that we got from Save Our Schools. The Nobel Prize Committee says that money matters in education. Uh, in spite of what the current politicians in power in Canberra say. Uh, Then we have an interesting article about what's going on in England as the children come back into school uh, out of uh, COVID. And um, then we're going to also learn about misguided policies with Indigenous students. And we've got a great state school this week this is another school where the surrounding uh, area has skyrocketed in house values, in residential values, because so many people want their children to go to this school. But it's not the only one, because with the uh, housing shortages and the housing prices, parents are really shopping around for good value when they don't have that much money, it's going into mortgages and um, they are choosing good public schools. The enrolment trends of the next few years are going to be very interesting indeed. So let's get on with it. Press release 912, our politicians and where they went to school. And Oliver's going to start us off. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jane. A recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald OF outlined the schooling background of our members of parliament and it makes very interesting reading. Given that two-thirds of Australian children attend public schools, it could certainly be argued that they, their parents, and their teachers are grossly underrepresented in our current democratic system of government. Private school graduates are overrepresented. 30% more members of parliament attended non-government schools. Of those, 71% of liberals and 67% of nationals attended private schools, while only 40% of Labor members of parliament attended private schools. 
four members of parliament, Julie Collins, Lou O'Brien, Terry Young, and Jackie Lambie did not finish high school. These figures perhaps explain the current disconnect between large sections of the voting population and their political representatives. The trust in teachers has skyrocketed during the pandemic, but our trust in the political class, particularly at the federal level, is in decline. We are presented on this front with many politicians from a private school background who appear to think that they are entitled to rule, whatever the consequences to our public school system and even the climate future of all of our children. The future for democracy lies in our public system of education and our public services, not in a private sector that has gone AWOL on the common good. Thank you, Oliver. Well, let's find out a little bit more about the background of our politicians. And Jeff and Sorrel are going to inform us a little bit more about this very, very interesting and informative article that appeared in the Sydney Morning Herald. Over to you. Uh, thanks, Jean. Uh, so this article from the Sydney Morning Herald entitled Pathways to Parliament, um, Australia's parliament could be viewed as unrepresentative, elite and homogenous. It is stacked with private school graduates and MPs are twice as likely to be university educated. But this is not the full story. The average federal MP is a man born in 1969 who graduated from a private school attained an arts degree and worked in business or management before being elected. However, our MPs come from more diverse walks of life than their counterparts in the UK or the US. Four didn't finish year 12 and there are former farmers, truck drivers and sports people amongst the lawyers and lobbyists. Liberal Party members are likely to have additional experience from fields such as the military, agriculture or lobbying and the men are less likely to have an undergraduate degree than the women in their party room. In the Labor Party caucus, men and women have similar rates of undergraduate education and are more likely to have attended public secondary schooling than members of the coalition. Its members are more likely to have worked in unions, public service or education before parliament. Data collected for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age takes a snapshot of the education and career backgrounds that the members of the 46th Parliament bring with them. In some ways, the Parliament is unrepresentative, elite and homogenous. It's stacked with private school graduates. There is a preponderance of arts and law degrees and a shortage of science, technology and mathematics degrees. Although 12.8% of female MPs have a STEM degree compared to only 6.4% of men and generally are from high income fields such as law and business. However, this is not the full story. Inspired an analysis in the New York Times, this data set is a cross section of Australia's highest representative body and reveals idiosyncrasies that our democracy has fostered. I'd just like to comment uh, on that. It's very interesting that a lot of them have arts degrees, seeing as this is the very same government that is trying to increase the cost of arts degrees. But uh, over to you, Jeff, to tell us where they came from. Yeah, thanks, Sorrel. Um, uh, from a high school point of view, private school graduates in, from the article are overrepresented in Parliament. 30% more MPs in, attended non-government schools than public schools. In comparison, ABS data shows that in the 80s, when the average MP would have attended high school, public high schools catered for approximately 150% more students than private schools. Digging deeper into the numbers, 71% of Liberals and 67% of Nationals attended non-government schools while only 46% of Labor MPs attended non-government schools. Senior MPs are more likely to have attended private schools. Of the Coalition's Cabinet, 87% attended private schools and 48% of Labor's Shadow Cabinet attended non-government high schools, in other words, private schools. Constituting just under 2% of the Parliament, four MPs, Julie Collins, Lou O'Brien, Terry Young and Jackie Lambie, did not graduate high school. This compares to over 40% not completing high school in the 1980s when the average MP would have left high school. Three MPs, Gladys Liu, Marine Faruqi, Christina Keneally, graduated high school overseas, and one MP, Jordan Steele-John, was homeschooled. Um, from an undergraduate point of view, uh, university education, over three quarters of MPs have at least one under undergraduate degree. This is more than double the rate amongst every, everyday Australians. 
The ABS reported in 2020 that 35% of the Australians added aged between 20 and 65 had at least one undergraduate degree. But a lot of these people would have gone through when uh, it was all free. Of course. Yeah, that's right. And um, interesting, you know, to see how many of them are arts degrees, as, as Sorrell pointed out, because um, uh, we tend to think that they have law degrees and things like that, because often they do. Although in Victoria right now, we've got a huge uh, problem of not having enough lawyers in the Liberal Party to fulfil the role of Attorney General, which is interesting. Um, I so bet anyway, you they didn't have any hex debts. To continue, um, despite the apparent gulf between the two figures, of, you know, uh, Australia's parliament has a strong contingent of representatives without university degrees compared to the US House of Representatives, where about 95% have a university degree and the UK of House of Commons, where 85% have, according to the latest available data. The Liberal and Labor parties have similar rates of undergraduate education with 82% and 81% being of their caucuses respectively holding a bachelor's degree or higher. For the Greens, it's about 70%. Of the caucuses with at least 10 members, the Nationals are the least credentialed with 57% holding undergraduate degrees. And look, honestly, that's not a really big surprise. Um, and the undergraduate degrees they hold, you know, in the case of Barnaby Joyce, it's an accounting degree. Um, they're not maybe uh, scientists. They're not maybe uh, lawyers. Poor old nationals. Yeah, often an agricultural degree, exactly, you know, from Dookie. <laughs> Lovely. Good on you, Dookie. Anyway, of the MPs who have undergraduate degrees, 58% studied arts and 35% studied law, whereas only 13% studied STEM or, or a medicine degree. That's amazing, isn't it? And in a world that's as complex as this one is, with uh, complex climate change problems, complex technology adoption uh, problems. We have such a f uh, so few scientifically literate MPs. It is extraordinary um, that we have, uh, unfortunately, we elect these people. So I, I'm well, sorry. It explains I really, a lot, doesn't it? It explains. It does. It does. It's, uh, yeah, the, the muffed, you know, um, NBN, things like that, which was clearly technology, technologically challenged, um, certainly on some one side of the parties of, of, the, of the government. Anyway, to continue... Well, that was Malcolm Turnbull, remember? I think people should remember that Malcolm Turnbull was the one who, it, who uh, created the mess with the NBN. But don't you remember he basically he invented a, he the internet? He was a virtual banker. He was, he was but he, he also... He, he was under, the, under pressure, to be fair, from the right-wing of yep. their party. It was held to ransom on that, I think, you find. Um, but, to, yeah, anyway, but no doubt about it. Um, Sorrel, would you, would you like to continue? Yes, I would love to continue. Um, the postgraduate education, uh, half of all MPs with postgraduate qualifications sit in the Liberal Party room. Of them, seven attained their postgraduate degrees at either the prestigious British Oxbridge or the American Ivy League universities. Treasurer Josh Frydenberg attended both, attaining a Master's of Philosophy at the University of Oxford and a Master of Public Administration at Harvard University. 11 MPs came to Parliament armed with a PhD. Two Liberals, Katie Allen and Fiona Martin. Five Labor MPs, Anne Alley, Jim Chambers, Andrew Lee, Daniel Muliano and Jess Walsh and two Greens, Adam Bant and Maureen Faruqi, and one Nationals MP, Anne Webster, and independent Helen Hines. Uh, what they were doing before Parliament career-wise, um, the Australian Parliament has a strong representation of former blue-collar or service workers, with 22% of MPs citing experience in non-professional fields, in comparison with less than 5% in the US House in 2019 who came from such backgrounds. Of the 51 MPs who previously held blue-collar or service jobs, half are in the Labor Party, a byproduct of the party's roots in the Labor movement. This means 27% of Labor MPs have blue-collar or service experience, this is just behind 30% of the Greens, with the Liberals and the Nationals trailing at 19% apiece, which really is quite um, wild if you think about it. I would have thought that there would be a higher percentage of people that have had a blue-collar job at some point. Most of the people I know have worked a service industry job at some point. 
but obviously these people maybe run in different uh, circles. <laughs> um, with the Australian Parliament's higher proportion of people without university degrees compared to the US and the UK, as well as those with blue collar or service experience, Dr. Patrick Leslie, a political scientist at the Australian National University, notes with cautious optimism that there are real difference in the education and career pathways of coalition and Labor MPs that offer voters genuine choice. He suggested that this greater level of diversity may be attributable to Australia's system of compulsory voting. This, Dr. Leslie says, makes median voter-seeking machines out of Australian political parties, instead of incentivizing them to cater to smaller, usually more educated subsets of the population. Former National Senator John Wacker Williams famously spent time as a truck driver, shearer, farmer and small business owner before serving 11 years in the Senate. He attributed his experience in blue collar work as a key driver of his decision making in Parliament. The things that have helped me a lot that I had been an employer as well as being an employee. Being on both sides of the fence gave me a good understanding of the hard job it is to run a small business or a farm, but also to work, a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. You That's can learn- very unusual with a lot of our politicians. <laughs> Definitely. Mm. Uh, you can only learn so much out of a book and a teacher, but I think real life experience is the best of all because you can make mistakes and you can learn from them. Ordinarily, Australian citizens who don't have letters at the back of their name, who've lived through real life experiences, they can make a great contribution to Parliament because of the understanding they come with, he said, which I would, I would tend to agree with him. Danielle Wood, CEO of the Gratan Institute, agrees, warning elite homogeneity is undesirable. The downside of drawing MPs from a narrow pool of privately educated students with art slash law degrees is that you end up with a parliament disconnected from the broader electorate, less likely to appreciate the problems of the majority of the population from different backgrounds, she says. Homogeneity in backgrounds can also create a clubby atmosphere where others from different walks of life find it harder to make it into politics or to get selected for key roles. Well, we might but, have a bit more. We might have a bit more diversity than the United States or the UK, but it really isn't diverse enough, is it? So, no, it's, it's wild. They keep talking about how there's diversity in the article. The statistics don't really <laughs> lend to be that diverse. Um, just like to address, sorry. Oh, I was going to say back over to you, Jeff. So perfect timing. Oh, I was just going to say, um, just on the Oxbridge sort of thing, where they sort of there's a cargo cult mentality amongst a lot mm. of people, and they like to look good on paper. So they they um, they have a resume which often includes some English uh, establishment. It's a bit like uh, you know you're ticking boxes on your way to success as you. Like, for example, Tim Smith, who is in trouble this week with, with his, his some, something to do with his driving, um, he, he, uh, he, he's, in year nine he went to rugby school. He was sent off to rugby. His father was an Olympic rower and, and, of course, he went off to rugby for year nine and came back to Scotch uh, where he you know, continued his rowing career and his meteoric rise to fame and fortune. You know, um, so that there's this thing where, the, and he off, he ended up going off to the London School of Economics on a sort of a uh, a small uh, outing as well. And the thing the thing with uh, these cargo cult style approaches to your resume building, these exercises that they do, it, it's it, you can almost you know Abbott would have done this to various other people. You can almost sort of plot their trajectory you know, all the way into Parliament. You can see it coming from year nine. It used planning. to be called, the, Jeff, it used to be called the cultural cringe. That's right. Yeah, you have to go and get a ticket. I mean, even I went over to England and spent a bit of time with Cambridge, but I wasn't actually studying there. You know, I, was, I, was, I, did, I did a bit of fun with, 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 um, with them for a while, but it does look good on your resume. It's amazing. I didn't want to use that, and I don't often, but um, the, the point is that, this is a, it's it's empty, it's vacuous. It's a vacuous approach to education. It's a vacuous approach to qualification. It's where you don't really know anything more than anyone else, but it looks good on paper. And 
and you're plotting out a, a trajectory into an elite ruling class, and that is as a politician. So Tim Smith, you know, youngest mayor of um, Stonington, um, you know, and his big claim to fame was that he told people to protest putting up uh, clearways in down there, amongst these many other things. You want to ask why politicians aren't trusted? Um, it's because they lie. And, they, and this guy who's turned around, he's actually this morning, just uh, earlier this week, in a press conference said, yeah, it's okay if you want to call me a hypocrite. You know, I've asked people to resign over Twitters, but now I've, I've done this drink driving thing. I'm saying I'm you know, considering my future, but I'm not necessarily going to resign. Uh, that sort of hypocrisy and absolute dishonesty is why one of the reasons politicians are losing. Well, I'm sure that'll be covered later. But I just wanted to say about that Oxbridge thing. It doesn't impress me. It usually means nothing in terms of life experience, except the fact that they've met a lot of influential people. Anyway, I'll move on to the rest of the article. Sorry about that. I just wanted to have a vent about Thank that. You. Um, so the next part of the article goes to, addresses the gender imbalance. It's the underrepresentation of women, uh, which is a much discussed topic when it comes to diversity in parliament. Women comprise 38% of the 46th parliament. 20, this is federal, obviously. 26% of the Liberal Party room and 29% of the Nationals and 48% of the Labor caucus and 60% of the Greens. Female MPs, 81%, are more likely than male MPs, 73%, to have an undergraduate degree. This margin is more pronounced in coalition parties where the Nationals have a 14-point difference. 67% of women have an undergraduate degree compared to 53% of men. And Liberals, an 11-point difference, 88% of women and 77% of men. The Labor caucus, which notably has a gender quota for its pre-selections, has only a two-point difference in the rates of undergraduate education, 82% of women and 80% of men. On the other hand, male MPs, 31%, are more likely to have postgraduate degrees than female MPs, 27%. The gender divide, men and women. Uh, Haynes, Michelle Landry and Marik Faruqi, the eight of the 11 MPs with backgrounds in medicine and in health, are women. Dr Helen Haynes, independent member for INDI, says the disparity in education levels between male and female MPs suggests women need to reach a higher bar to be elected. Um, that's what you often see. Women have to do 10 times more work just to be taken seriously by men. This is commonly known these days um, in terms of, you know, we see this right across the gender divide. They have to be lots better than the men just, uh, just to get ahead as far as the men. We hear it loud and clear from some people who already hold positions of power that, seat, that a seat in parliament comes solely from merit. We shouldn't try to engineer diversity into our parliament. That's what well, that's it's all the very in, It's all very interesting stuff, isn't it? But yeah. what, what struck me was another article that we'll deal with next week, actually, yeah. about a new oh. public secondary school that's being built at Greenvale, and it's already oversubscribed with people wanting to um, enrol their children there. But the headmaster said that he was hoping that the children and that what they would give the children were the values, um, that they would be honest, and that they would be the sort of person that you would like to have as your neighbour. And I thought that was rather nice. Uh, that is what actually public schools are about. They are about the common good. They are about producing people who do have are good values uh, for the society because they are the cornerstone of our democracy. But unfortunately, the private system, which talks more about values than the public system, has in fact uh, let down the country uh, rather badly in the kind of people that it has sent to Parliament, they have sent to Parliament. But that's enough of that for the moment. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back to talk about the the um, trust in teachers and how important teachers are in our society. This is Hugo Race and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Subscribe now. Yes, well, here we are again. Uh, this week we had World Teachers Day and the AEU have something to say about that. Over to you, uh, Dale. 
Thank you, Jean. Yes, the IEU says put teachers at the heart of education recovery this World Teachers Day. So the AEU is calling for greater respect, recognition and reward for public school teachers on World Teachers Day, which was the 29th of October. AEU Federal President Corinna Haythorpe said that the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on education had highlighted the resilience and leadership skills of public school teachers, principals and education support staff. Despite working longer hours, many unpaid and overtime, teachers moved swiftly and smoothly between on-site learning and online learning, ensuring students continued to benefit from high-quality learning programs, Ms Haythorpe said. There is tremendous respect among the community for the work that teachers do and a better understanding of how valuable their role is in society. However, the pandemic has also exposed and exacerbated the pre-existing inequities in public education funding and revealed the urgent need to prioritise investment in teaching and learning at the heart of the post-COVID recovery. The results of the union's most recent survey of public school teachers and principals demonstrates the urgent need for fair and proper funding for public schools from both the federal and state governments. Preliminary results of the AEU's 2021 State of Our Schools survey conducted annually by the AEU shows that 2,936 teachers, that of the 2,936 teachers that responded, more than 80% of teachers agree that wellbeing and morale has declined over the past 18 months. 67% of teachers report significant workload increases during the pandemic and 55% of teachers say their public school is under-resourced. The survey also revealed that teachers need more time for lesson planning, assessment and reporting within paid hours, along with smaller class sizes, more classroom assistance, additional support for students with disabilities and upgraded facilities. Public schools require an immediate investment to achieve a, mini a minimum of 100% of the schooling resource standard, Ms Haythorpe said. Now remember the SRS is a number, a figure that the Gonski report came up with and that is a bare minimum you need to run a school. And it's legislated that public schools will only ever get 95% of the SRS and that's not good enough. So increased investment would mean more teachers, reduced workload, smaller class sizes, as well as greater individual attention for students and more support for students with additional needs. This year's World Teachers Day theme is Teachers at the Heart of Education Recovery. Australia's political leaders must acknowledge the critical role teachers will play in the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic and resource public schools accordingly. For too long, the Morrison government has denied public schools the funding that is needed to ensure that every school and every child has the resources they require to thrive. Now more than ever, proper funding is needed to ensure that teachers are well equipped with key resources to lead the COVID rebuilding efforts in the education sector. The AEU is calling on all political parties to commit to funding every public school to a minimum of 100% of the SRS and provide capital works funding to ensure public schools have the facilities required to meet growing enrolments ahead of the next federal election. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you very much, um, Dale. And uh, here we have some of the group in the community that have the highest trust who are being starved of funding. And the teachers in both New South Wales and Victoria are actually, in New South Wales, they're going on strike and in Victoria, they're going, on, on, they're going slow on emails and administrative matters because uh, they need to be paid more, a great deal more for the essential, essential, absolutely essential work that they do. And here we've got some interesting information about forest schools over in the United Kingdom. Over to you, Sol. Thanks, Jean. So after months of homeschooling, more and more children in the United Kingdom are ditching their tech and heading outdoors. 
After more than a year of lockdowns with limited access to nature, Magdalena Bay was delighted when her six-year-old daughter came home from forest school and informed her that she had found three rat skeletons. One of them, Alaya told her, was pretty fresh. These little observations are very crucial to their learning. It's amazing, says Bay. Since Alaya and her sister Hana, nine, started going to the urban outdoors adventure in nature after school club in North London in June, they have used clay, learned about insects and made campfires, marmalade and bows and arrows. They are part of a wave of children across the UK who have joined forest schools since the start of the pandemic, many since September. Of the more than 200 forest schools surveyed by the Forest School Association, about two-thirds said demand for their services had increased since March 2020. Amongst the reasons cited were increased awareness of the benefits of the outdoors, especially in relation to stress and anxiety, COVID safety, and the dissatisfaction with the school syllabus after months of pandemic homeschooling. I don't think it's ever been more popular, says Gareth Wynne-Davies, Chief Executive of the Forest School Alliance, who expects demand to keep increasing. But it's still got some way to go. It's a fairly young sector, just over 20 years old, and it's a grassroots movement. It doesn't have that top-down government attention yet. Forest schools, which centre around unstructured play, exploration and intrinsic motivation, arrived in the UK in 1993. Inspired by the outdoors culture of Scandinavia, sessions are usually held either entirely or mostly outdoors and are intended to supplement rather than replace traditional education. State schools are increasingly putting on forest school sessions for pupils within the school day because they are considered to be beneficial to mental and physical health, behaviour and academic attainment, as well as being relatively COVID-proof. Bay says that having grown up in the village amid nature, she was always keen on signing her daughters up to forest school. So when she learned about one nearby, she put their names down straight away. After the first session, they were very excited. I've never seen them so happy after doing any after-school club like that, she says. Abby Sutcliffe, Director of Urban Outdoors Adventures in Nature Forest School, was worked with 100 children a week in after-school clubs and 60 pupils in schools, said there has been a massive uptake in the last year. It's a combination of the lockdowns and people realising that being outdoors is actually quite good for your mental health. During the first lockdown, they ran free sessions for local children. They have just finished a, le- a year-long youth program, including bushcraft, blacksmithing and herbalism, While some forest schools are held on National Trust land or private woodland, as an urban forest school, Sutcliffe's is run in public spaces, including a nature reserve and a canal side park. The mental health and well-being benefits are palpable, she says. Students are turning to forest school to teach children social, emotional and physical skills that have become rusty during lockdown, says Vicky Stewart, who is the director of Brightwood Training near Swindon. She says forest school is also being used to meet the needs of children, which have been changing since the 1990s, but have been particularly accelerated by the pandemic. Children are indoors using technology to talk to their friends rather than going outdoors, and they have relied more and more on technology since COVID that has happened even more. She teaches children old-fashioned group games, such as hide-and-seek, tag, and grandmother's footsteps, because they don't know how to play them, in part, she says, due to COVID, but also because of safety fears about playing outside and pressure to achieve academically. But while forest schools take children away from technology, it still creeps in via their imagination, says Kent-based forest school leader Annabelle. When a child now makes a camp, not always, but a lot of the time, there'll be a flat screen TV, which is a piece of wood. There'll be a remote control. There'll be an Xbox or something. Look. Lockdowns were a chance to get off the treadmill for families, said Lewis Ames, co-director of Devon-based Forest School, Children of the Forest. They've seen a rise in applications since the start of the pandemic, with about 150 families on their toddler group waiting list and 50 to 60 children on the waiting list for their forest school for home-educated children. That pause gave a lot of families time to think and go, is this actually working or are we just surviving and getting through, Ames said which then prompted a lot of families that started with us to go, actually, no, this isn't quite right. Well, that is a wonderful initiative in the UK. Well, uh, here in Australia, of course, for a long time, we've had community gardens and that kind of thing, particularly in our state schools. 
but um, this is one further step that I thought people might be interested in. But, of course, it all takes money, doesn't it? And um, unfortunately, our private school educated politicians in Canberra don't seem to think that public education needs money. But we'll have a bit of a break. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card. And once a year, your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Well, you're listening to the Brought Dogs program. Yeah, thanks, Jean. Um, It turns out that money does matter in education, not from the way you think, though. Um, It's not just a matter of public schools needing more money. There was a Nobel Prize awarded this uh, October, uh, and it it went to uh, 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 David Carr, Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, So let me read this article about Trevor Cobalt, by Trevor Cobalt, on... The Nobel Prize Committee says money matters in education. So in awarding the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2021, the Prize Committee said that there is a strong empirical proof that money matters in education. This is an incredibly significant statement from a notoriously conservative institution. It represents a new consensus that has developed in recent years that more spending on education can increase school outcomes and future earnings, especially for disadvantaged students. In awarding the Nobel Prize jointly to David Card, Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, the prize committee said his studies showed that the resources in schools are far more important for students' future labour market success than was previously thought. Committee's detailed analysis supporting the, the award found the overall conclusion from the past 30 years of research is that the school resources appear to matter for labour market outcomes in industrialised countries. Furthermore, the impact of resources on school achievement tends to be greater for non-advantaged students, suggesting that their schooling choices are constrained to a greater extent than for students from advantaged backgrounds. The quasi-experimental literature is consistent with the view that earnings effects of investments in education are higher for individuals from disadvantaged backgrounds. In other words, you get more bang for your buck by giving money to disadvantaged kids than you do to giving money to advantaged kids. That just makes sense, doesn't it? It totally does. Card's work challenged conventional wisdom on the impact of the minimum wage, immigration and education expenditure. He pioneered what are now called, what are called natural experiments to establish causal effects of policies and programs in these areas. This, This approach uses sophisticated statistical models to analyse situations in which chance events or policy changes result in groups of people being treated differently in ways that resemble randomised controlled trials in medicine and other scientific fields. In other words, instead of like setting up a control and trying to have a group of kids who you fund more and a group of kids who fund net less, which is actually unethical, what they're using is examples of changes of policies where naturally groups have been isolated and they can then interpret... Um, the data straight from the real world instead of using some sort of experiment. It is the real world. It's observational uh, science. Card and Alan Kruger of Princeton University, later chair of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Obama, co-authored two innovative papers in the early 1990s. In contrast to much of the previous literature, they analysed how school quality affected labour market outcomes rather than just test scores. They found that individuals who grew up in US states that had higher expenditure on education than elsewhere, and which was used to reduce the student-teacher ratio, had systematically higher earnings than those in other states. As the prize committee observed in its supporting analysis, the results of in the two papers by Card and Kruger surprised the research community and contributed to renewed research on relationship between resources, student achievement, and future earnings. These studies brought rigor and transparency to the analysis. And by addressing these questions in a novel and an a priori 
more credible ways, Card was able to produce new and more reliable answers. The committee said that these studies demonstrated the power of exploiting the technique of quasi-experimental variations to reveal causal effects in policy areas rather than relying on correlational analysis as it did on previous studies. Card's work and that of others followed that followed, overturned the previous consensus that the relationship between educational achievement and resources was weak. The previous consensus was largely based on the influential studies by Eric Hanasek of Stanford, which concluded that the relationship between achievement and resources was close to non-existent. Hanasek's conclusion was also challenged by a meta-analysis of the studies he surveyed, which found a positive association between achievement and expenditure. The earlier studies by Card and his co-authors played a crucial role in shifting focus of in empirical research in education, as well as other policy domains. Many studies followed that demonstrated a positive and significant relationship between education expenditure and student achievement in future earnings. The committee's statement in support also reviewed several recent studies following CARD's methodology and showing positive effects of increased expenditure on education. For example, a major study found substantial effects of higher education expenditure on the educational attainment and wages. It showed that school finance reforms involving higher expenditure tended to reduce student-teacher ratios, increase teacher salaries, and extend years of schooling. It found that 10% increase in, in, in per-student spending throughout the elementary and high school improved, ed, improved educational attainment by 0.31 years and raised wages by 7%. Moreover, the effects were much larger for students from low-income families. A similar recent study published in the US National Bureau of Economic Research found that school finance reforms in the US that increased expenditure in low-income school districts, increased high school completion and college entrance amongst black students and females, as well as increasing annual earnings. We find that school finance reforms lead to, led to increases in educational attainment and in mean earnings. These results hold when we consider full state population, but we generally find larger effects for black than for white students. A recent survey of US evidence presented strong support for the conclusion that educational resources have a significant impact on student achievement and labor market outcomes for individuals. It pointed out that this does not imply that all types of, types of spending increases in all types of contexts yield improvements in achievement and labor market outcomes. However, on average, it does so. As the Nobel Prize Committee concluded in another statement, there is now relatively strong empirical support to show that investments in education influence students' later success in the, on the labour market. This effect is particularly strong for students from disadvantaged backgrounds. The Nobel Prize for Economics has been widely criticised for ignoring broader political economy challenges in the world, such as wealth, poverty and inequality, and that it is dominated by a particular approach to economics. It has generally favoured conservative economists whose work is firmly based on orthodox neoclassical economics. The prize was created by the Swedish Central Bank, a leading advocate of free markets, as a vanity project for its 300-year anniversary. The community itself has long been criticised for being dominated by right-wing Swedish economists. In this context, the committee's conclusion has tremendous significance. It indicates how wide the consensus is on the impact of education expenditure. It has critical importance for the future of school funding policies in Australia, which have long failed disadvantaged students and schools. Test scores for low SES year five and year nine students have fallen or remain largely unchanged since 2008. Achievement gaps between rich and poor have also remained largely unchanged at three to four years of learning and have increased even in some circumstances. Despite this, Australian governments have failed to ensure that funding increases are directed to where they are most needed and where they will have most effect, supporting disadvantaged students and schools. Private schools have been lavished with money over the past decade. Commonwealth and state funding for Catholic schools has increased by $1,919 per student, adjusted for inflation, and by $1,893 for independent schools in the 10 years 2009 to 2019, compared to only $469 per student in public schools. However, private schools enrol only a small minority of low SES and other disadvantaged students. In contrast, public schools enrol over 80% of disadvantaged students and over 90% of disadvantaged schools are in are public schools. Clearly, funding increases over the past decade have been badly misdirected. School funding is in dire need of reform in Australia and to address disadvantage and improve equity in education. The conclusions of the Nobel Prize Committee for Economics provide strong support for such reform. Yes, well, thank you very much. It just shows you um, 
how important it is that we have the right politicians in Canberra. In fact, those who are graduates of public education uh, who understand how important it is to fund our public education uh, properly. Well, we've been finding out how the economists who win Nobel Prizes uh, have been uh, working out that it's uh, good economics to put money with disadvantaged children. The most disadvantaged children in Australia are usually Indigenous children. Over to you, Jail. Thank you. This is an article uh, from SOS Australia um, talking about the misguided policies that are directly causing remote Indigenous students poor school attendance and literacy, and rising incarceration rates. Uh, so there was a media release from uh, Australian Teachers of English to Speakers of Other Languages, or TESOL, in the National uh, Territory, uh, saying that misguided Commonwealth and Northern Territory government policies are directly contributing to remote Indigenous students' falling school attendance and a abysmal literacy levels, according to two scathing submissions by ATSOL to a current federal parliamentary inquiry. Applying the same education policies to students who are culturally and linguistically different does not result in equity, said Fran Murray, the ATSOL MT representative. Uh, In fact, it's widening the gap, not closing it. Uh, The submission explains why Closing the gap targets for Indigenous education are increasingly out of reach. Remote schools are in crisis. Meanwhile, the number of Indigenous young people in Northern Territory prisons has doubled in the past year. John Lawrence SC, uh, former head of the Anti-Bar Association, who has over 30 years of experience working in the Northern Territory legal system, observes that the inexcusable failing of our education system clearly revealed by their failure to teach Aboriginal children to read and write is one of the major reasons for the increasing numbers of Aboriginal youth being captured by the oppressive carceral regime that is the Northern Territory juvenile justice system. Clear evidence of Commonwealth and anti-government education policy failure is only 14% of very remote Indigenous students attended school even four days a week in 2020. Numbers may have fallen further in 2021. Uh, Fewer than 4% of Year 9 remote Indigenous students met minimum writing standards in 2019. And currently 100% of young people in Darwin and Alice Springs prisons are Indigenous, while suicide is now the leading cause of death among Northern Territory adolescents in remote communities. In their submissions, A.T. Salenti describes how Indigenous education policy consistently ignores the fact that more than eight out of 10 people in remote communities speak an Indigenous language. For example, Indigenous students in remote communities are required to sit NAPLAN tests, which are designed for English-speaking students. As beginning English learners, the students can't understand NAPLAN questions, so they are routinely told to guess answers by colouring the bubbles on the test pages. In response to disastrous NAPLAN results, uh, millions has been wasted on imported commercial remedial literacy programs, and these are unsuitable for students in remote communities who do not use English outside school. Northern Territories Effective enrolment funding formula is another problem. Since 2012, the Northern Territory's effective enrolment formula has funded schools according to student attendance, not enrolment rates, for the past 12 months. As a result, many remote schools have lost up to 50% of their budgets, and both Indigenous and non-Indigenous teaching positions have been cut. These schools are now locked in a vicious cycle of shrinking budgets that lead to lower attendance, causing further funding cuts. Remote students generally enrol in large numbers in terms one and four. To staff classes with fewer teachers, class sizes have to be large. These students find large classes intimidating, so they cease attending. Unstable and shrinking budgets are making it impossible for remote schools to plan ahead, engage in outreach and attract qualified and stable staff, all of which are necessary in promoting student attendance. 
They're also importing American and British remedial literacy programs and other short-lived initiatives. In their panicked response to inevitably catastrophic NAPLAN results in 2015, uh, the anti-government mandated the remote schools use an American direct instruction program that cost $25 to $30 million. It included flying instructors from America to remote Northern Territory communities several times a year. In 2018, this expensive and inappropriate and clearly failing program was cancelled. A second remedial literacy program, Read Write Inc., this time important from Britain, is now in place. Its content assumes that students live in England and it completely ignores the need for Indigenous language speakers to develop spoken English as a basis for reading in English. Um, Indigenous communities are obviously experiencing program fatigue. Staff and students are reluctant to engage with programs that may be cancelled a year later. Uh, uh, Indigenous Education Strategy limited secondary schooling options for most uh, remote Indigenous students to either Northern Territory or interstate boarding schools or the new local community-based employment pathways program. Uh, in term three, 2020, EP was terminated. That's the enrolment pathways, leaving four, 537 secondary students in 32 remote communities stranded. Boarding school is now the only option for many remote students. Uh, the results are a sense of failure by students who drop out of boarding school and it discourages other younger students in the community from continuing their education. Uh, failure to employ qualified Aboriginal teachers, assistant teachers and English language teachers in remote schools is having its effect. I think it's, the onus is on the government apparatus to provide the correct tools to help the children navigate. But uh, yeah, the teacher submission contains 32 recommendations that respond to the educational needs and aspirations of Indigenous language speakers in remote communities. High priorities are one, stable and timely and adequate budgets to remote schooling to allow planning, community outreach and the employment and retention of Aboriginal teachers, assistant teachers and qualified English language teachers. Two, Australian and locally made programs, teaching resources and professional development approaching appropriate for teaching speakers of Indigenous language in remote communities. And three, restoration of viable pathways to secondary schooling and employment in remote Indigenous communities. Let's have a break and uh, we've got a great state school for you. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the school. week. Great state schools. State, state schools. schools. School are of the week. Schools. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And our great state school is White Hills Public School. I'm going to give you a little bit of history about White Hills Public School. Primary school number 1916 opened in Napier Street on the 1st of July, 1877. 108 years later, this new site in Plumridge Street was purchased and officially opened by the Minister of Education, Mr. Lindsay Thompson. 200 young trees were planted on that day and the results can be seen today. In August, 1983, Education Minister Mr Robert Fordham set up a local planning committee to develop an educational brief as a basis for a new school. On approval of the brief, they secured the appointment of local architect Mr David Breeden. Tenders were called in February 1984 and let by the PWD to hookers builders. The local planning committee carried out close monitoring throughout construction. Joint school community use of facilities were planned for, with particular emphasis on the multi-purpose hall, meeting room, canteen, toilets and showers, sports ground and parking. Mr Robert Fordham, Deputy Premier, officially opened the new building on Friday the 18th of October 1985. Landscape and grounds development has subsequently been undertaken mainly through working bees by parents and staff, and the handyman ground person and funded by parents club and school council. Recently, two large covered playgrounds, one is for prep use, have been constructed. 
In 2006, through a grant from the Abbott Trust, a fitness area was developed for school and community use, while a large cover was placed over one basketball court providing shade and wet weather cover. Continuing with their goal to improve their students' learning environment, a large sports shed was built to enable physical education classes to be held in all weather. The floor of that building has been covered with artificial turf. A 150,000-litre uh, tank has been placed to collect the water from these two large structures to enable the watering of the school gardens, while connection to reclaimed water has resulted in their oval being re-sown and green at all times. Internally, the school environment has also been enhanced by continuous maintenance and improvement. Classrooms have multimedia facilities with students accessing a range of ICT, including personal laptops and iPads. They are proud of their school and the environment that they and others have created. The school has approximately 968 students, 313 boys and 312 girls. Its ICSIA value is 968 and 7% of its families have an income in the upper quartile or 25% from the Australian community, 16% are from the second quartile, 28% from the third and 48% are from disadvantaged families. There are 11% of students from non-English backgrounds attending this school and 4% are Indigenous students. The Australian government provides $1.6 million and the state $6 million. The parents paid $235,000 in fees and raised $71,000 in 2019. All in all, it costs $12,360 to educate a child at this primary school, which is a bargain. But the most interesting part, their NAPLAN results are above average in reading, grammar and numeracy and nothing in this school is below average. Congratulations, White Hills Public School. You are our great state school of the week. And we're coming to the end of our time now. So if you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But I'll pass it back to Jean now. Yes, well, our time is gone, so we look forward to being with you next week as well. Bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find Joe, you're ten years dead. 
I never died, says he.